Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9. We're looking this morning at 6 through 13. You know, when I was sitting in my office yesterday morning and again this morning, looking out over this majestic landscape that I call my backyard, and uh, my cotton tree is in full bloom. You know, growing up in Texas, I'm used to seeing this, this, this visual. It's usually that they're about two feet off the ground. Now my whole, my whole trees are just full of cotton. It's everywhere. But it's a beautiful sight. It really is, and I, and I, I do love it. I love to, to just watch the snowfall. I love to watch my kids play in the snow, and you all feel the same way, I'm sure. But we all know that there's another side to the story, right? And, and I thought yesterday as I was uh, sitting in my office, and I thought, in just a minute, you know, I'm having my quiet time, and it's, it's this really cathartic, wonderful moment with the Lord. I'm looking out. But then the thought crossed my mind, as soon as I'm done here, now I have to go out into this, and I have to deal with this snow, and I have to clear my driveway, and there's pain, and there's harsh feeling. You know, it's cold, and my, my fingers were numb, and, and yesterday I got stuck because I got off the road and, and frustrated, and uh, there's, that, there's that dichotomy. You know, we watch the snowfall, and it is beautiful and lovely, and it brings up nostalgic feelings, and, and it's wonderful. But on the other side, you recognize that it's hard. It's painful. In a similar way, the doctrine that we're looking at this morning and over the next several weeks, the doctrine of election is both beautiful and at times painful. And there are times that you can get stuck. If you, there, there are ditches on either side of this road. Ditches that can cause us to stall out or get stuck in our faith, to get angry with God. I don't think that God's word wants us to get angry at God. I, I, I don't think that, that God gives us his word to frustrate us, to exasperate us, but rather to help us to understand who this God really is. And I believe, you know, I, I am not some scholar I would never want to find myself at this point teaching in a seminary, but I, my confidence is that if we open the word of God and we humble our hearts and we walk through this verse by verse seeking to understand with the help of, of some good scholars, some good theologians, some good commentary writers, that we can navigate these two or three beautiful chapters of God's word. And I believe that it will allow us to experience the beauty of God's sovereignty without getting stuck in the ditch. One of our women texted me yesterday. I never bring my cell phone into the pulpit, but one of our women texted me, and I had it pulled up. Now I've got to search for it again. She texted me yesterday, good and glorious morning as we dip our toes into the waters of God's sovereignty, free will versus the election, 
predestination versus nihilism. No, I am praying that the Lord gives you the exact words for his flock to hear and understand. Praying for hearts that have been taught one hard fact or another hard truth and cling to those teachings out of fear or out of security. Praying the Holy Spirit goes before and melts the stones of deception and roots out the fear so that truth can be received and embraced. Praying that the, quote, fairness doctrine collapses in on itself and dies. And that we all fully know that this God, our creator, our savior, has a higher and better way, whether we grasp it or not. Asking the Holy Spirit to fill us to overflowing with exponential faith to believe and trust more deeply in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. My response was, what a beautiful prayer. I say amen. Amen. Well, let's read here and get into it with the Lord's help. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted out as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the other will serve the younger, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we come into your presence seeking to understand. Seeking to understand better, we understand that there's not going to be full understanding until we see Jesus face to face, and maybe not even then. But Lord, you've given us your word, and you've revealed to us what you want us to know about who you are, and about your salvation, and about your sovereignty. And it's not our job to apologize or to explain away, but rather to just teach the word. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless the teaching and preaching of your word. I pray that it would be to your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so keep in mind here that, that, that Paul was not writing a theological textbook. We, we, we have to constantly remind ourselves that Paul was not the first commentator. He, he wasn't writing a theology book for use in seminary. He's writing a letter to a church. He's writing a letter to real people that are struggling with some real issues. It's a, it's a, it's a church that is in Rome. It's mostly uh, Gentile in culture, and yet there were Jews in the body. And perhaps Paul was picking up on or had heard that there was animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul is explaining here in these verses and in these chapters, how it is that a majority of the Israelites to whom all of the blessings that we covered last week in, in Romans 9 verses 4 and 5 
all of those blessings were given to the Israelites, and yet they rejected the gospel and forfeited their inheritance. So the, the, the logical question must be, has God broken his promises to the Israelites? Has he broken his word? Or in other words, in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The question might be, has God failed to keep his word? Was it not effective? Did it not work? You've heard me say this before, that we are not responsible for fruitfulness, but faithfulness. We are not responsible for fruitfulness, but faithfulness. Only God can cause the gospel to penetrate a person's heart because only God has the power to give spiritual life to that person. And so in evangelism, it is not our task to convince someone to life. We don't argue someone to life. Rather, we preach the gospel and we live our life in light of that glorious gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of man to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, Paul says in Romans 1. Paul continues in verse 6 and 7. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this comes from Genesis 21, 12. Where Sarah demands to Abraham that Hagar and her son Ishmael be removed from the home. Hagar was the servant of Sarai. And Sarai, who later became Sarah, told Abraham, or Abram at the time, go into my servant Hagar and let her bear the offspring because I'm an old woman. And Abraham listens to Sarah, his wife, and Hagar bears him Ishmael, the firstborn son of Abraham. And now his wife Sarah... Now that Isaac has been born and Ishmael is bullying Isaac, demands that Hagar and Ishmael be removed from the home, and Abraham is thinking, that's my progeny. That's the heir of the promises of God. That's my firstborn son. You want me to remove my firstborn son? And God assures Abraham that the promise the covenant promises that he made with Abraham would not continue through Ishmael, but rather through Isaac. And thus we see that even in Abraham's day, this is the point of, of Paul's argument. It's not as though the word of God has failed, because even in Abraham's day, we go back to the, to the headwaters, the very beginning, the origin, and we see that not every child born to Abraham was a part of the promise. Not everyone who descended from Abraham was a child of promise. Not every son of Abraham belonged, so to speak, to Israel. Now, Abraham actually had eight sons. We normally talk about Ishmael and Isaac, but he also had six sons through a concubine. Ishmael was the result of Abraham's doubt. 
Isaac was the son of Abraham's faith. Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham, yet it was not he through whom the covenant promises would be passed. Nor, nor was Abraham or Ishmael's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, all of these things that, that Paul spoke of belonged to the Ishmaelites. They did not come through Ishmael, nor did the Christ come through the line of Ishmael. The nations would not be blessed through Ishmael, but through who? Through Isaac. Instead, Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples and ultimately of Islam. Do you realize that about half of the world's 3.2 billion unreached people are Muslim? The mission of the church today is so difficult because of Abraham's doubt. Tragedy of tragedies that Satan would use Abraham's doubt. The one through whom the promise of covenant blessings, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, would also be the father through whom arguably the chief counterfeit religion comes. Faith and doubt. The offspring of Ishmael perpetually warred against the offspring of Isaac. We see in Malachi the nation of Edom, which is, which is, which is the sins of Esau, but we also see these other descendants of Ishmael at war with Israel. And even today, the offspring of Ishmael are at war with the offspring of Isaac. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean here when he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel? There, there's two Israels. Not all who are descended of Israel from Israel belong to Israel. Paul told us in Galatians 6.16 that the church is the true Israel of God. And in Romans 2, he tells us that the true family of Abraham are those who believe, like their father Abraham. Now, as a, war, as a word of warning, because there's, there's ditches here, as a word of warning, in Romans 11, Paul warns us, warns the church not to get arrogant because it is not the nation of Israel that is grafted into the church, but rather the church that is grafted onto the olive tree of Israel. And so what does Paul mean when he says Israel? I believe that he means everyone in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. I mean, we don't think of this very often, but we are Israelites. If we have faith, we are Israelites. We have been adopted into the family of God. 
We've been grafted onto the olive tree, not vice versa. He says in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. It was not Ishmael, the child of the flesh, the offspring of doubt, who was a child of God. Instead, it was the offspring of Abraham's faith in the promise of God, namely Isaac. Paul explains what he means here in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now that comes from Genesis 18.10, where God promises to Abraham that he's going to have a son, he's going to come back about a year, and Sarah's going to have a son, and the result is Isaac. This excludes Ishmael from the promise to Abraham. Now, it could be argued that the reason that God chose Isaac rather than Ishmael was because Ishmael was the offspring of Abraham and Hagar, who was not his wife. And Isaac was the result of, or, or, or the, the, the son of Abraham and his wife. And as if to cut off that argument, he supplies another example, this time of two boys from the same mother, Jacob and Esau. He says in verse 10 through 13, And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That last quote comes from Malachi 1, 2, and 3. The only thing that distinguishes Jacob from Esau was God's divine choice to love the one over against the other. That's it. They had done nothing, either good or bad. They were still in the womb. Same father, same mother. The only thing that distinguished these two boys was God's choice. And so the fact that some Israelites of Paul's day reject the gospel, that they do not receive his grace, that they do not respond in faith, that is nothing new. Paul, Paul is saying, you should not be surprised. You should not think, well, God's word has somehow failed because some of the Israelites, some of the Jews, don't accept this gospel. If we go all the way back to the headwaters, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see God's sovereign hand of election. And thus, it is no more a failure of God's word that some Jews believe and some don't believe, or arguably some Gentiles believe and some don't believe, i.e. some Americans believe and some don't believe, or Spaniards, or Ukrainians, or Romans, Italians, or Germans. 
It's no more a failure of God's word. It's no more a failure of the power of the gospel of salvation that some believe and some don't believe than the fact that Jacob was loved over against Esau. The truth is that neither Jacob nor Esau did anything to deserve God's grace. That's why Paul adds, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob was no more deserving of God's blessings than Esau. But that's the thing, Christian. It is not about deserving. It is about grace. I also want to bring your attention to the contrast in this statement. It is not because of works, but because of him who calls. You might, you might, if you were arguing this, you might, based on what you understand, might say it's not because of works, but because of faith. But that's not what God says. That's not what God's word says. This calling is God's effectual call where God calls something into existence. God's calling is the source and the grounds of your faith. Why are you saved? You might say, because I have faith. And I would say, why do you have faith? Because I have been called. Remember chapter 8. Go there. Chapter 8. The end of chapter 8. What was the order of salvation? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also what? And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The call of God on a person's life is an effectual call. It is a call from death to life. We respond to Jesus the same way Lazarus responded to Jesus. Let let that settle in for just a moment. How did Lazarus, dead in the tomb for four days, obey the call of Jesus? See, some would say, well, the call goes out, and you and I and everyone must respond to that call. Spiritually, we are as dead as Lazarus was physically. And we can no more respond to the call of God on our life, on our own power, than Lazarus could respond to the call of Jesus in his. So how was it that Lazarus responded to the call of Jesus to come forth? It was that the call created what it was being called to do. In calling Lazarus, he created the life that allowed Lazarus 
to respond. In the same way, when God calls, he creates in us spiritual life. And it is out of that spiritual rebirth that we then respond with faith. Now again, the truth is that Jacob and Esau, neither one of them deserved to be blessed by the Lord. Daniel Doriani, one of the commentators that I read, said Esau was violent and impulsive. Jacob was deceptive and scheming. I hope that as you read through the Old Testament, that you recognize that the authors of the Old Testament capture these characters, warts and all. Because the point is grace. Even in the, New, the, the Old Testament, the point is grace. Jacob was a conniver. His name means deceiver. He got that name by extending his hand out as if to pull Esau back in in order to be born first. And he gets the name Jacob, meaning deceiver, and he lives up to that name. And he, he robs Esau from his, of his birthright, and Esau despised his birthright and gave it up for a bowl of, of soup. But Jacob, who, who does that? Who looks at a starving brother and says, give me your birthright and I'll give you some soup? And then Jacob, at the end of his life, so desires for material gain, the blessing of his father, that he deceives him and steals what should have gone to Esau. Esau was no better. He was an outdoorsman. He was violent. He had a strong appetite for food and for pagan women, Doriani says. If God's choice of Jacob and Esau was not based on works, upon what was it based? Paul tells us the reason that God chose Jacob was that in order that God's purpose of election might continue. It was about God's purpose and plan in the world. It was about ordaining that Jacob would be blessed by Isaac, that he would have sons, 12, that they would become the 12 tribes of Israel, and from Israel would come a blessing to the nations, namely the Messiah, Jesus Christ. All of human history is unfolding as the Lord ordained. Nothing has gone contrary to his divine plan. No one on planet earth deserves God's kindness. No one deserves his grace. And yet all who walk by faith have received it. So perhaps the better question for you and I is not, God, how could you hate Esau? But how could you love Jacob? God, how could you not choose some, but how could you possibly choose me? Now, this word hate is interesting. And I just want to point out 
that when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your father and mother. Now, is Jesus teaching us that we must despise and dishonor our parents? No, but in comparison to how we love Jesus and his preeminence in our lives, it is as though we hate our parents. And in the same way, it is said that God hated Esau in that he chose instead Jacob to be the recipient of his covenant promises. And why did God love Jacob? That is the real question. For the humble, honest, sincere explorer of God's sovereignty, the question must be, why would you love Jacob? Why would you give Jacob covenant promises and his offspring. And as you read through the Old Testament, time and time again, you see the unfaithfulness of Israel. And you go, God, how could you stand those people? And once again, if you're sincere, then the next thought goes, how can you stand me? Because the nation of Israel is is like a macro of you and me. Faithless at every turn. I chuckle when when I read the responses of the Israelites in Nehemiah and Ezra and to Moses. And when they say, we will certainly do these things. And I go, foolish people. And I think about my life and I go, God, I will certainly, right? How could God love Jacob? God was delivering on his promise in Genesis chapter three. That's how he could love Jacob. He was delivering the promise that he made in Genesis chapter three to send the seed of a woman to crush the head of Satan for the sake of the elect, for the sake of all of those who would receive the unmerited favor of God. God was sending the rescuer. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. He chose not the firstborn of Jesse, But the last, David, he chose Mary, the virgin. He chose Paul, the persecutor of the church. And he chose you. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. That he may bring to conclusion the finite history of the world, culminating in the infinite victory of Christ over Satan and the resurrection of the saints to eternal life so that for all of eternity, he might lavish upon you, child of God, child of promise, 
the immeasurable richness of his mercy and grace. You ever wonder what's in store for you? You ever think, man, I'm just going to barely skate in, barely coast in, and whenever Jesus looks at me, he's going to snarl his nose, and he's going to think, how could you have gotten in? Now, here's what Paul tells us is waiting for believers. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us in his, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you are saved, you have been saved by grace, through faith. You were dead as Lazarus in the tomb, stinky, decrepit, dead as a doornail. And Jesus called you to life. By grace, you have been saved. Four points here of application. Number one, put no salvific hope in heritage. The religious Jews said to Jesus in John 8, 39, but Abraham is our father. By this they revealed that they believed that their heritage would save them. Jesus quickly dispatched with that delusion and he said, it's not Abraham that's your father, but Satan. You descendants of Abraham, Abraham is your dad. Excuse me, Satan is your dad. And you do the works of your father, Satan. It seems appropriate to draw the corollary between the visible and invisible Israel and the visible and invisible church. If not everyone who belonged to visible, physical Israel belonged to true, invisible Israel, then it stands to reason that not everyone who belongs to the visible, physical church belongs to the true, spiritual, invisible church. Daniel Doriani reminds us, from the beginning there was always an outward physical Israel and an inward spiritual Israel. Abraham fathered Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac fathered Jacob and Esau. David fathered Solomon and Absalom. In each case, one son followed God and the other did not. This warns us that no individual can rely merely upon heritage. And no local church 
can rest upon their history. It is not enough to be part of a godly lineage, but rather you must be godly yourself. It is not enough that the church has faithful doctrine, but rather that those who call themselves the church believe the faithful doctrine. It is not enough that a church has a history of proclaiming Christ, but each one must personally receive the Christ proclaimed. Being a member of a church, being the children of Christian parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, having a long heritage of Christian ministry does not mean that you are a Christian or a faithful church. Your heritage will mean nothing on Judgment Day unless you yourself walk in the faith of your fathers. The only thing that matters regarding your salvation on Judgment Day is your faith. Do you believe the gospel? Number two. Well, here's the irony. Before I move on, here's the irony. Those who need to hear this today, those who are relying upon heritage, those who are presuming upon the Lord that because their father was a Christian, their grandfather was a Christian, their grandmother was a Christian, because their name is on the roll at a biblically faithful church, and they're presuming upon that rather than responding in faith, the irony is that they will likely not hear that. But those who are saved from the judgment of God because they have been born again and have faith in Jesus Christ are going to be the first ones to be most anxious about their salvation. And to them, I would say, continue to work out your faith in fear and trembling. Move out of presumption into assurance, but put no hope in your salvation, in your heritage. Number two, be slow to judge God. I just realized I wrote, be slow, judge God. (laughs) Jacob, fix that real quick if you can. Be slow to judge God. Thank you, Jacob. F.F. Bruce cautions us, if God does not reveal the principles on which he makes his choice, that is no reason why his justice should be called in question. The quality of mercy is not strained, and least of all when it is God who shows mercy. For if he were compelled to be merciful by some cause outside himself, namely by our works, or namely by some action on our behalf, Not only would his mercy be so much less the mercy, but he himself would be so much the less God. Now, one might feel inclined to call God to the witness stand for cross-examination, having read what we've just read and heard what we've just heard. 
And that's precisely why Paul predicts that response in Romans 9, 14. He asks, is there injustice on God's part? Perhaps there's some righteous indignation rising up in you. How could God? I caution you with the words of the late Charles Spurgeon. I will not attempt to prove the justice of God in having thus elected some and left others. It is not for me to argue for my master. He will speak for himself, and he does so. And he quotes here Paul's response to that question, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? That is Paul's conclusion. That is Charles Spurgeon's conclusion. And it is mine. And I pray that it is yours, lest you hear the words of God spoken to Job, dress for action like a man, and I will question you. Be slow in calling God to the carpet, O man for it is you who will be found lacking. The Lord can handle your honest questions. This does not mean that we don't have spirited debates as we seek to understand and seek to apply. God can handle your honest questions and even your exasperated doubts. But lest you face his cross-examination, I recommend that you be slow to put God on the witness stand. Man does not stand before God innocent but guilty, totally depraved. Justice demands that every one of us receives his wrath. Do you really want justice? Do you really want divine, perfect justice? Then none of us would stand righteous before his throne. The fact that he gives any of us grace is abundantly merciful. Which brings me to the third point. Number three, respond to his grace. Once again, Daniel Doriani is helpful here. He advises that a proper response is not to ask, well, am I elect or not? Have I been called or not? He says that the fact that you even ask such a question is a sign of life that you even desire to be close to God, that you desire to be saved is a sign of life. He says the best response is since I have heard the gospel and have assurances that God is merciful, I should believe in him and find assurance of his love for me. I exhort you to resist the inclination to treat Romans 9 merely academically and merely theologically and how do we debate this and how do I wield this as as a club in favor of or against the doctrine of election but rather that you would respond to God's electing grace 
Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul is dealing with individuals. He's not, he's not, he's not concerned about the nation of Israel. He's not concerned about the nation of Edom, even though he quotes from Malachi, which is concerned about them, but he's applying those things in the context of individual salvation. Why is it that some Jews, individuals, reject the gospel while other individuals believe? Paul's concern is your individual salvation. Respond to his grace today. And fourth and finally, get in the fight. This is a major ditch that I have found among those who are most eager about God's sovereignty in election. And it is the ditch of passivity, the ditch of apathy, the ditch that says, well, you know, if God is just going to save some, then what business of it is mine to go and, and, and evangelize? Why should I take the gospel to the nations? Why should I be involved in the mission of the church? Why should I allow my precious children to put their lives at risk to go to people who may kill them? The same author who wrote Romans chapter 9 of this sovereign election also wrote in Romans chapter 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I believe that God's sovereignty in election is the fuel of missionary zeal. What missionary leaves their church and says, it's all on my shoulders. Lord, I am going to go out into the world and I'm going to save sinners. No, instead they say, Lord, you have sent me and you have given me the gospel and it, not me, has the power of salvation. And Lord, we pray that you, O oh God, would go before us and that you, God, would call people out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And when you look at it that way, you realize, church, that you get to be part of what God is doing in the world as he works out his purpose of election through you. What a blessing. Father, we love you. 
We love your word. We thank you for grace. We thank you for unmerited favor. We thank you for the call to life. Lord Jesus, help us to respond faithfully. Perhaps there are some here or watching who are presuming upon their heritage. I must be good. My name is on the roll at a church. My parents raised me in a Christian home. I pray that today would be a day of spiritual life for them and they would respond to the gospel of grace with faith and put no salvific hope in their heritage. And Lord, as we, some of us maybe wrestle with this doctrine, help us to be slow to judge you. Help us to come to you humbly and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I pray, Father, that you would ignite a missionary zeal in Wildwood Church. That we would rest in your sovereignty as we go out, our lives are in your hands and the fruit of ministry is in your hands. And Lord, you would, you would use us to go out and to bring in our future brothers and sisters in Christ. To you be all glory and praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.